morning is going to be probably PG rated, PG plus, maybe a little bit. Uh, and we're just going to talk about some things um, that are what God designed and created. It is all good. But you may have little kids that are not ready uh, for that discussion. I have little kids that are not ready for that discussion. So my wife is going to take kids, um, we're kind of thinking maybe elementary age kids, and they're going to go to the fellowship hall, and she's got activities. They're going to paint the walls uh, and cut. No, I'm kidding. Uh, but she's going she's gonna to keep them occupied in there. Uh, so if you have kids that you would prefer to avoid some, some discussions, I would recommend going over there. Um, but no big deal if you don't. Uh, for teenagers, uh, we, you need to be here for this. Uh, this is for you this morning. Uh, this morning, uh, Abraham came to me and said that in order to preach good, I need a sports coat and a tie. And I asked him if I could borrow his, but he said it was being used. So have low expectations this morning, I guess, is what Abraham's saying, which he's right. Uh, and also, before we jump into that, as Jeremy has already alluded to, he graduated this week. And so we got you a present. Uh, this is just a congratulations. Um, we're proud of you. We're thankful for you. Uh, a little something for you as a, a way to go. You, you got a very expensive piece of paper, but from our church to you. Um, I'm, I'm thankful that your ministry was not selfishly motivated. This is not a degree for you, but it's for us. And I, I promise you that we are reaping the benefits. Um, I, it, will, it will affect every area of ministry of liberty. Um, it's exciting. It's exciting that it's not something that is just a one-and-done deal, but it's exciting that it's something that will perpetuate. This is something that can last for generations to train people, to train men to lead the church. So uh, be encouraged. Be, be, congratulations. We're, we're thankful. We're proud. Uh, and Jeremy sent me a picture of, of him after having graduated, and so I Googled a picture of a fungal foot and sent it back to him and said, now you can fix all our problems. So if you have any problems, send them to Jeremy. All right, now for the fun part. You've had a chance to leave, uh, and you're still here. Lord help us. Uh, Exodus chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. I'm going to warn you also on the front end that we're going to have a little bit of Bible drill this morning. We're going to cover a lot of scripture from Genesis all the way into the New Testament. Uh, there's going to be flipping. Uh, have your Bibles, have your phones if you use the phone, but, but a lot of this is going to be text that you need to have in front of your eyes. So just be, be warned. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, our word for today, you shall not commit adultery. Father, this morning, as we study what your word has to say to us, uh, Lord, I ask for your help. Um, God, I pray that because of the things that we see here, we would be drawn to purity. God, I pray that we would see the goodness of God and sex and how you designed all things to work. God, I pray that this would cause us to love you more. God, I pray that this would draw us into a more intimate relationship with you. Uh, God, that we would see you better because of your word for us today. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, a couple weeks ago, Dad and I were flying down to San Antonio. And we were going to meet with H-E-B grocery store who buys a lot of our watermelons. You don't know us, our family, we're watermelon farmers. Uh, so we were going to meet with H-E-B, and um, the, the weather was supposed to be a little questionable flying into San Antonio. So Dad asked a friend to fly with us who's got a little more experience being a pilot. So I was in the back seat of the plane. It's a little airplane. We're all wearing our headsets. And uh, Dad and the other guy were up in the front seat of the plane, and they were 
chit-chatting, and I don't think they realized that they had me muted. Uh, so I couldn't hear anything they were saying, and I couldn't communicate with them, which was all good because I just pulled out my stuff and was like, hey, this is a great opportunity to sit back here and be left alone and study. And about an hour and a half into the flight, they turned around and were like, man, you sure are quiet. And I said, I can't talk to you. You can't hear me. So they turned me on, and uh, they, they turned me on. What, what are you doing back there? What are you doing? Well, I'm studying for my sermon. So the guy was flying. He said, well, what are you preaching on? Well, I'm preaching on adultery. I know it's Sunday not to come to your church. I said, yeah, yeah, I know, no. But after a minute of quiet, he, he asked the question, he goes, well, how do you define adultery? And when he asked the question, I'm, I'm probably reading more into what he was asking, but when he asked the question, it kind of struck me in, in a way that was like, is what you're really asking, what are the parameters of what I can get away with? And, and I'm a little bit nervous that that's probably some of the question that we want answered today is, what all is the boundaries here for me to stay inside of and still honor God? What are the boundaries in which I can live and still be considered holy and righteous? And that question, again, that's not the question he asked, but when he asked it, that's kind of what hit me, because I know it's a question I've, I've asked. Well, what, all, what all is permissible and what all is impermissible, right? Well, I've got good news. If we were to take a scalpel and we were to cut out Exodus 14, and we were to take it, and we were going to lay it on the dissection table, and we were going to look at that verse just in and of itself, just, just those, what, five words, you shall not commit adultery. If you, if you look at that, the way adultery is defined is don't have sex outside of the covenant marriage. That's it. Don't have sex outside of the covenant of marriage. So this command in this context, is for married people. And if your question today is, what exactly is adultery? That's it. Don't have sex outside of marriage. And that's all there is to Exodus 20, 14. Be real simple if we stop there, right? Be real nice if we could just take this verse and we could just isolate it and we could lay it on the table and just look at that right there and leave it. But the problem is, is if we take that view we really only have a one-dimensional view of Scripture. We don't get to see the depth and the beauty and the design that God has for us. So the bad news is, is we're not going to take the one-dimensional view. We're going to look at this a little bit further than that. So the perimeter is basic. Yes, it's don't commit sex, don't have sex outside of the covenant of marriage. But we don't see the heart of God behind this passage. And when you don't see the heart of God, you miss the glory of God in understanding his creation of humanity and his relationship to it. So we're going to press into this. Uh, I realized this morning I broke one of the cardinal sins of a sermon, and that's to always have a main point. What's the main point? What's the one thing you can walk away with? And all the preaching classes you ever take, that's the one thing they tell you to have. And I woke up this morning and I went, I don't have a main point for my sermon. That's not good. Uh, so I, I took a shower, and I sat there, and I, I thought about it for a little bit. Um, and I think if I had to narrow this down to say, what's the one thing that you need to know? What's the one thing that you need to take away from this that God has for us, and you shall not commit adultery? It's, it's that God's design for marriage, God's design for the covenant, is only to reflect the relationship that he has with us. And that that is a beautiful, wonderful thing, and it's way more intimate than what we first imagined. So 
I hope this morning we see the glory of God in marriage, uh, we see the glory of God in the covenant, and we're convicted by, by sin uh, from this. So I want to step back for a little bit. I'm going to try and use Jeremy's uh, approach to this. He, he's had three points on every one of the words. It's been God uh, God in the word, then Christ in the word, and, or us in the word, and then uh, Christ in the word. And I'm going I'm to change that slightly. The first point I have this morning is we're going to look at Israel in the word. I want us to look and see what what does Israel know about this when God says you shall not commit adultery? I want to leave it totally in the context of the Old Testament. We're going to kind of forget the New Testament for a minute and just look within the context of the Old. So if we step back, we think about Israel. Go back to the beginning of Exodus. Where do we find the Israelites? They're in slavery. They're in slavery to Egypt. They're being punished and they cry out to God and God hears their cries. And when God hears their cries, he remembers Exodus 2, he remembers, he remembers the covenant that he made to their father Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. He remembers the covenant that he has with Israel. So he hears their cry, and then he calls, and he raises up this dude named Moses in a pretty bizarre set of circumstances. A baby in a basket floating down a river and surviving is, is miraculous, right? And then Moses is raised up in, in the Egyptian court, kills a guy, gets sent to the desert, and that's where God calls to him from a burning bush. And God says, Moses, I've chosen you to lead my people out of Israel. And Moses has all these excuses. I don't want to do it, God. Not me. I'm not your man. Don't choose me. I'm not the guy. God finally does all these miracles in front of Moses, and Moses finally obeys. God, I'll do it. Moses goes to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, you got it, right? No. Pharaoh says, no way, no how, not happening. God performs the ten plagues. The ten plagues happen. Finally, the Pharaoh relents. The people go to the Red Sea and turn around. Who's coming? Here comes Pharaoh with all his chariots. He parts the Red Sea. Israelites go across. The chariots enter. The water crashes. Pharaoh and all his army is killed, destroyed, wiped out. Moses and his people sing for joy. They're excited. Woohoo! We've conquered. God is the Lord. He's going to one who's going to fight for us. Then the next chapter. Here they go. They start grumbling. They grumble as they walk through the desert, headed to Mount Sinai. And once they get, we get to chapter 19, the people of Israel have come to the foot of Sinai. And I want you to flip back a page. This is the beginning of our flipping. Flip back a page, or if in my Bible it's a page. I'm going to look at Exodus 19, 1 through 6. <clears throat> on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There, Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and to the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Israel has entered into a covenant relationship with God. What is a covenant? Well, if we look at the covenant as a, as a transaction, we look at it as there's two parties. We have God and we have, we have Israel. And, and what does God get out of this covenant? Well, God gets a treasured people. 
a people who will be his kingdom of priests, a holy nation. That's what God gets. And God promises to give them, to be, to give him to them, uh, give himself to that people. He promises that what is his belongs to them. They shall be his people. He'll commune, commune with them, commute with them, talk with them. He'll have a unique relationship with that people. And what about Israel? What does Israel get out of this covenant relationship? Well, Israel, if they do their part, which is they keep the covenant by obeying his voice. So, so Israel gives submission to the word of God. They submit to his word. They obey it. They keep his covenant. And in return, they get to be God's treasured possession. They get to be his unique people in all the earth. And they get what is his. For all the earth is mine, declares the Lord. It's, it's like what belongs to me belongs to you. And you'll be to me a kingdom of priests. Now, what's a priest? A priest is a representative of God to the people. So, so God is going to say, you're going to be how I show my nature, how I show to the rest of the world who I am. As long as you live according to my ways and live according to my laws, I'm going to use you. And so, so Israel, it gets God himself. It gets all that belongs to God. It gets to be his representative to other people. You know what this relationship kind of sounds like? It, it sounds a little bit to me like a marriage. So, so in a marriage covenant with my wife, she gets all of me. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Emotionally, spiritually, physically, she gets all of it. It's what you got, right? And what do I get in return? I get all of her. Emotionally, physically, spiritually, all that is Jordan belongs to me. And, and God, God calls that covenant of marriage a holy, a holy union. It's a literal uniting of one flesh, right? It becomes one unit. So now when Jordan says, we're going to be there for something, it's as good as me saying we're going to be there for something. Or we're, when Jordan tells our kids, hey, look, obey, it's just as good as it's coming from me, right? Everything that I own belongs to my wife, and everything that she owns belongs to me. It becomes one unit. And so God enters into this very unique, very beautiful relationship, this very beautiful covenant with this group of people. And one that the only way that we can compare it, the only thing that we can relate to is the covenant of marriage. So that's cool, that's good. But why then is adultery forbidden? Well, is it because sex, the thing that unites that marriage, is it because sex is bad? Is that why adultery is forbidden? No, it's the opposite of that. You see, sex is like what Tim Keller calls the superglutes, the cement that holds the bond together. You see, these, as a husband and wife come together, they commit, we stand before here, we trade vows, we make promises to one another, but the sealing of that marriage happens the night of that marriage. It happens in the act of sex. That's what seals it. And so sex is the bond that ties a husband and a wife together. But what happens when you take sex and you disengage it from that? And you put it outside of that covenant bond? Well, it's like taking a tube of toothpaste and squeezing it out somewhere. It's not how it's supposed to go, right? It ruins that toothpaste. It's a waste. You can't use it anymore. If it's the covenant bond that holds a marriage together, what happens when you take, I think of bricks and mortar. What happens when you take the mortar out of the bricks? The whole structure crumbles. Everything around it falls down. As, uh, as one commentator said, um, 
uh, where is it? Adultery begins a breakdown of order that threatens the entire society. So, so when you take the bond of marriage and you adulterate it, you have sex outside of it, you begin to break down that marriage. And, and if you think about the purpose of marriage and what a marriage does, well, part of marriage is to unite a flesh, but it's also to procreate. It's to have children. And so when you have children and they have children and they get married, you begin to build a society. But what happens when the husband and the wife, when one commits adultery and has sex outside of that, that marriage? Well, that marriage is then fractured. Those children then suffer. And what happens about the other person that they had sex with? Well, it fractures that relationship, and those children begin to suffer. And all of a sudden, because of adultery, this whole society begins to fail. It begins to fall. So, sex is designed then as, a, as something to unite a family, to unite a husband and a wife, to build a community, to reflect the love of one another intimately. And when you, when you, when you adulterate that, when you use it outside of, of, of its purpose, you've broken that trust. You've broken that relationship that you have. Al Mohler says, if we cannot maintain trust and, fide- maintain trust and fidelity, within the small and inherently meaningful universe of marriage. How can we trust each other in commerce, in politics, in business, in culture, in life? A culture that embraces adultery accepts within itself a poison pill for every other relationship, a toxic substance that threatens every other commitment. Adultery is primal in its attack upon all that is honorable and good and true and faithful, unraveling precious bonds and commitments. You see, the sin of adultery doesn't just affect a husband and a wife. It affects the whole community, the whole society that that marriage is found in. Unfaithfulness in marriage, it corrupts the purity of the union, and it debases what God has declared holy. And all personal sin yields collateral damage. It affects those around them. Marital dysfunction causes a ripple effect. So then, when God says to Israel, don't commit adultery, it's because one this horizontal relationship that one that we have with each other is a reflection of the vertical relationship. And if I can't maintain trueness and faithfulness within this relationship, what in the world am I willing to do here? Is there anything that I won't do? For Israel, this command had a very clear meaning. Do not violate the marital covenant because fidelity to the covenant that God had with his people was his main point. But what does Israel do? What does Israel do? If you look at Israel, who's entered this relationship with God throughout the rest of the Old Testament, how does Israel respond to God? How does Israel keep the covenant? They stink. It's awful. Flip with me to Exodus chapter, uh, not Exodus, Ezekiel chapter 16. I'm going to read a, a little bit of a long passage here. But it's also a, It's a beautiful and an ugly passage all at the same time. Ezekiel chapter 16. I'm going to read 34 verses. It's a long one. Ezekiel says, Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations, and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem. Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth on the day you were born, your cord was not cut. Nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. 
know why I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you. But you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you, in your blood, live. I said to you, in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed you by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed with you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk, and I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrist and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. You see, God is describing how he finds Israel. Who's Israel? They're a nobody. If you look back in Deuteronomy, God says, I didn't choose you because you were somebody. I chose you because you were the least of these. You have nothing special to offer me. No one loved you, we see here in Ezekiel, in the first part of this passage. No one loved you, yet I raised you up, and then I found you, and I made, it describes a marriage. It describes the covenant that I find you in. I make you beautiful. I clothe you. I anoint you with oil. I embroider you with cloth. I wrap you in fine linen. You get ornaments, jewelry. You become more beautiful than anyone. Everyone beholds you, and you're a beautiful person because I made you beautiful. And how does Israel respond? Verse 15, but you trusted in your beauty and you played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore. The like has never been nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I have given you, and made for yourself images of men and with them played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them. And set my oil and my incense before them. Also my bread that I gave you, I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey. You set before them, you set before them for a pleasing aroma, and so it was, declares the Lord. And you took your sons and your daughters whom you had borne to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whoring so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? And in all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare and wallowing in your blood. And after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, declares the Lord God. You built yourself a vaulted chamber and made yourself a lofty place in every square. At the head of every street, you built your lofty place and made your beauty an abomination, offering yourself to any passerby and multiplying your whoring. You also played the whore with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, multiplying your whoring to provoke me to anger. Behold, therefore, I stretched out my hand against you and diminished your allotted portion and delivered you to the greed of your enemies. The daughters of the Philistines who were ashamed of your lewd behavior. 
You played the whore also with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. Yes, you played the whore with them, and still you were not satisfied. You multiplied your whoring also with the trading land of Chaldea, and even with this you were not satisfied. How sick is your heart, declares the Lord God, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street and making your lofty place in every square. Yet you were not like a prostitute because you scorned payment, adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. So you were different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore, and you gave payment, while no payment was given to you. Therefore, you were different. Do you see what Israel has done? They have taken the things that God used to make them beautiful and they made it into a false idol. And they fell down at that idol and they worshipped it. And they didn't find satisfaction in it, so God punished them. And he sent them to the Philistines, rebellious, wicked people. And even the rebellious, wicked people looked at them and said, this is despicable. What kind of people are you? And yet Israel continues to do that. Israel wasn't a normal prostitute that got paid to be a whore. Instead, they paid others to play the whore. This is how wicked Israel is. But do you realize that the sin that God is describing here is idolatry? They're bowing down before false idols. So why does God use whoredom and prostitution and adultery to describe the sin of idolatry? Only thing I can think of is this is something we can relate to. We know what it's like when a marriage covenant is broken. We have seen the destruction and the wickedness that happens when a man and a wife are not faithful with inside of their marriage. We know how it destroys communities, how it destroys the family unit first, and then it begins to just reach out into communities. Think of the statistics of, of, parent, of homes without fathers, homes without mothers. Think of, of the statistics there. As a side note, do you know what the punishment was for adultery? It was death. Death was the just punishment for the one who could not keep this horizontal covenant. Because if you cannot keep the horizontal covenant, there's no way you can keep the vertical covenant. So for Israel, when they read Exodus chapter 2014, and us when we read Exodus chapter 2014, we see that the fidelity to this covenant was the main point that God was making to his people. And he was making it to his people because he wanted them to realize that the covenant that he had with them was way more important than this covenant. It was way more real than this covenant. Now, this is a simple and a clear message. And if we just had the Old Testament, we could stop there. And we could say, don't have sex outside of marriage. But the problem is, is we got the New Testament, and there's this dude that comes along in Matthew chapter 5, and he takes this passage and he turns the screws up on it. Matthew chapter 5, let's go. Flip over that direction. Matthew chapter 5, verses tw verse 27 and 28. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. Then there's verse 28. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus goes right to the root of the problem. He says, it's not just what you physically do with your body that's the problem here. The problem here is your heart. And at the, at, the, at the heart of adultery 
lies the root of lust. So Jesus, he all of a sudden says, adultery isn't just the issue, but lust is. Now I have to go back to the airplane and I have to answer the question, well, how do you define lust? Right? We've defined adultery, but what about lust? Well, Jen Wilkin, who Jeremy's quoted as we've walked through this, she has a book that I would recommend everybody in here buy and read because it's really good, and she says all of this way better than I do. Uh, but she defines lust as this. Lust is the lingering look, the evaluating gaze. It is the meditative seeing that leads to the objectified desiring that ends in self-justified consuming of that which is off limits. So, lust is not to simply look at somebody and say, man, she's beautiful. That's not lust. What lust is is when you see and you objectify and then you consume. That's, when, that's what lust is. It's when you take an, an ordinary desire that God has put in you and you take it and you focus on it, you meditate on it, and you begin to think of all the possibilities. There is a really good illustration of this for us in Scripture. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. You don't have to flip if you don't want, but you can. Genesis 3, 1 through 7. <coughs> now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, now, Did God actually say to you, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, verse 6. So that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Eve saw that the fruit was good, she desired it, and then she consumed it. And so the first time we see lust happens in Genesis 3. It's an age-old sin. <clears throat> was Eve's desire to eat wrong? Is desiring eat the food wrong? No, it's God-given. But Eve wasn't just out for a snack. She was in pursuit of something that was not for her, something that was forbidden, something that was outside of God's design. Similarly, sexual desire is given to us by God. And when we experience sex inside of the design that he made for it, it's glorious. However, Sexual desire becomes disordered when it is driven by lust. Again, Jen Wilkin, she's really helpful here. Sexual desire inside the marriage covenant is an expression of mutual love. It's a rightly ordered desire. Sexual desire outside of marriage is an expression of lust. It's a disordered desire. Sex inside of marriage is about commitment and vulnerability, about the letting down of our guard and the literal joining of two fleshes into one. Sex outside of marriage is about consumption and vulgarity, the ac acquisition of pleasure in the short term, the thin appearance of love, the joining of what God has not joined. Sexual lust is many unsavory things, but it is certainly the temptation to avoid vulnerability and commitment. Inside of marriage, sex is self-giving. Outside of marriage, sex is self-serving. Inside of marriage, sex seeks the pleasure of another. 
outside of marriage, sex is about self-gratification. How else, then, does pornography establish such a foothold unless it's promising gratification of desire without vulnerability or commitment? Pornography, it enters in through the lamp of the eye, right? You begin to see it, and it promises something good. It fills you with darkness. It whispers that very same lie that Eve believed in her seeing, and that, ah, just a glance won't hurt. It never hurts to look, right? Church, promiscuity marketed to us in movies, sitcoms, it holds forth a more socially acceptable feast for the eyes, but it is doing much of the same thing to our spiritual vision as pornography. It's normalizing disorder. It glamorizes sex without commitment. But of course, porn goes even further than that. It abandons any pretense of consensual union, and it celebrates the degradation of lust. Whether the lust of the eyes indulges itself at the community pool or on a screen, those who gaze must convince themselves that the person they are viewing deserves or even wants to be consumed. And we don't consume people we love. We treasure and protect them as image bearers. Thus, the root sin of adultery chooses a person it is willing to treat with contempt. Lust, it devalues its object so that the act of adultery becomes the logical next step. Every commentary that I read describes lust as one word. It's a slow poison to the heart. It slowly begins to kill you. Lust leads to self-gratification. Lust is about self-worship. It's self-serving. It's about you. It shows contempt for others. It means you're looking down on another person as a piece of meat to be consumed, something to satisfy your desire. It's about having your wants and your needs satisfied in the short term. It's about self-pleasure. It joins together what God has not joined. It avoids vulnerability and commitment. It celebrates degrading another person. When you lust after someone... What you've done is you've made that person a commodity to be consumed. But godly sexual desire is given by God. Sex inside the covenant of marriage expresses true commitment. It expresses vulnerability. It's giving of your whole life, of your whole self to another person. It reflects the sacrificial, other-exalting love found within the Trinity. It represents the covenant relationship God makes with his people. You see, sex, God gave sex to unite the marriage union. In Corinthians, Paul tells the church, tells covenant people within the marriage, have sex often. Because when you have sex often, what it's doing is it's reminding you of the covenant and the promises that you made to that person. The same way that we take the Lord's Supper on a regular basis, we do so to remind us of the covenant that God has made with us. So likewise, sex then serves as a way to remind us of the covenant that we made with our spouse. And if you don't have that covenant tying two people together, then it's nothing about consuming and satisfying your own person and your own pleasure. It's not about love. It's not about, self, about serving another person. So what do we do? What do we do? Every person in here, unless God has given you the gift of celibacy, which Paul had, unless God has given you that, everyone in here has sexual desires. So how do we respond? Well, I've got good news. Jesus gives you an answer in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, 29, Jesus tells us, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, 
Cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go to hell. So according to Jesus, what we're going to do is we're going to go outside after the service and we're going to have an eye gouging and a hand chopping off ceremony. Jeremy's got all his knives back in his office. They're sharp and ready to go. If you believe in the literal reading of Scripture, this passage literally messes you up. <laughs> right? If, if conquering lust was as simple as poking our eyeballs out, man, we'd all be blind and we'd all be handless. Jesus' words here are, are given to us to provide the shock factor that that provides. Right? This is not... This is not what solves it. As with all of our sin, our offending eyes and our offending hands serve at the pleasure of our hearts. What our hearts delight to do, our members rush to accomplish. Church, we have a heart problem. We don't have an eye problem or a hand problem. Self-mutilation is not going to solve it. What we need is a new heart that's ruled by new desires. And that's where Christ comes in. We've seen the, co- we've seen the seventh word in Israel. We've seen the seventh word in Christ, or seventh word in us. But now we see the seventh word in Christ. What this commandment shows us is we desperately need a Savior. We desperately need Someone to take that heart of stone that Ezekiel describes and give us a heart of flesh. And the beauty of the gospel is that he has fulfilled the prophecy in Ezekiel 36, 27. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Hebrews 10, 15 through 18. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declare the Lord, I will, put on their, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their, mind, their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Church, the good news for us today is that God has sent someone to pay the price for the sin that, w- that we did. What was the punishment of committing adultery? It was death. And what's at the root of adultery? It's lust. So if you have committed adultery or if you have lusted, the sin that is justly due you is death. But thank God for Jesus, that he came and he stood in our place. He fulfilled all ten words perfectly. He died on the cross and he bled. And when he did that, he established a new covenant. He shed his blood and established a new covenant that we are now covered by. And he's given us the Holy Spirit. We talked about that this morning in Sunday school. He's giving us the Holy Spirit as a seal of that covenant, as proof that we belong to him. Church, getting off social media, not watching certain shows, not being in specific situations can certainly be wise and good. But they're not going to solve your problem. The only thing that's going to solve your problem is a new affection. There's a book that I read in seminary called Reordered Love, Reordered Lives. It's by a guy named Aubrey Malthus, I think. And what he talks about how is, and I don't, it's not, it's not him that came up with this idea, but all of life is worship. All of life is in pursuit of loving someone and finding love in something. 
And the problem with our hearts is that our loves are disordered, that we've loved the wrong thing. And that's what caused us to lust. And that's what caused us to act on lust. But when we reorder our loves by the power of the Holy Spirit, he gives us a reordered life. We need someone who will remove our hearts of stone and replace them with a heart of flesh. As he says in his book, God is not only the King of kings and Lord of lords, but he's also the lover of all lovers, and only his love will fulfill us. Church, if you are lusting after someone, you're trying to find love in a place that will never satisfy or fulfill you. All horizontal love is given to, to show you how, mu- how good and how much better the vertical love there is for us. When we delight ourselves in the Lord, he will give us the desires of our heart. That's what Psalm says, right? That, what that means, though, is not that, God, I'm going to sing songs to you on Sunday, and then on Monday you're going to give me that BMW I've desired. That's not what delighting in the Lord and him giving us the desires of our heart means. What it means is that when we delight in the Lord, our desires begin to be shaped by what delights him. And when we delight in the Lord, we begin to see as God sees. When we delight in his word, we practice the meditative seeing that leads to the holy desiring that ends in the consecrated consuming of the very bread of life. The result of that feast is a right eye that honors other, others and a right hand that works to give dignity. Such eyes and hands make manifest the kingdom here and now. So church, what, what's, what's our takeaway? How do we apply this? What do we think of when we leave this? Well, to those who live in a covenant marriage, to you the word is simple and clear. Honor your covenant. Don't have sex outside of marriage. To those of you that don't live in a covenant marriage, to those of you that are single, that are dating, that want to be married, God's word for you is is to delight in him. Delight in him. One of the commentators, as he wrote on this passage, he talked about the story of David and Bathsheba, the man of God, a man after God's own heart. And when you read the beginning of the story of David and Bathsheba, the, title, the start of that story says, it was the time of the season when the men go out to war. Yet David stayed behind, and he began to enjoy all that he had conquered and all that he had. And while he's walking around on his rooftop and he's seeing how wealthy he is and all the success that God has given him, behold, he looks down and what does he see? He sees Bathsheba. And instead of turning away and walking away, what does he do? He begins to lust. But you see, the problem that David had was it was the time of war. It was the time of season when men men went out to war. David wasn't doing what men were supposed to do. David was seeking self-gratification and self-exaltation in that moment. So to the men in this room, I want to say to you, be a man. Be the man that God has called you to be. A man who goes out to war doesn't live for himself. He lives to serve and protect other people. He sees that other person as an image created by God in which he is to love and to shepherd and to protect. So to the men in this room, 
Don't stand up on the rooftop and enjoy all that you have and, all that you, and think about all that you want. Instead, be a man. Live for someone else. That's, that's what men are called to do. What about women? Well, I think back to, I think back to Ephesians 5. That has both men and women. We see David in the Old Testament there. But in Ephesians 5, we see men give up your life like Christ gave up his life for the church. How did, what did Christ do for the church? He died for her. So if you want to stop lusting, you want to you stop committing adultery, act like Jesus did. Die to your own selfish desires and live for Christ. And to the women, as, as God said back in Exodus 19, to fulfill the covenant, the people of Israel had to submit, to practice submission to God's word. Because when you submit to God's word and you're obedient to him, then your horizontal relationships will fall into place rightly. Church, the seventh word is for married people. It says to you, don't have sex outside of marriage. When you do, you take away all the mortar from the building. The marriage falls, and when the marriage falls, the community suffers. To those of you that aren't married, the seventh word in the rest of the scripture is for you. Because it says don't lust. Yes, looking hurts. Looking leads to consuming. Looking leads to meditating on the wrong things. And when you meditate on the wrong things, you consume the wrong thing. You love wrongly. Your whole life, it's a, lust is a slow poison that will just slowly begin to kill you. Sex inside of marriage is glorious because it reflects the love that God has for us. It's giving of yourself to someone else in a true, authentic, vulnerable, committed way. But sex outside of marriage is selfish. It's all about you and your gratification. Church, as we close in prayer, the seventh word for me this week has been weighty. It's been something that I wrestle with and something that I see in our culture becomes common. It's become, we've become normative. And honestly, I'm afraid we've just become hard-hearted towards God's desire for us is one of purity. But the good news is, is God has given us one to make us pure. He's given us one that will fulfill that seventh word in a way we can't. So look to Christ. Jesus, thank you this morning for the scriptures. God, this word is a difficult one. It's a personal one. God, that doesn't escape a single person, a single soul, a single heart or mind in this room. God, I pray that we would leave this place delighting in the goodness of God and seeing your kindness towards us in giving us sex. God, I pray that we would honor the marriage covenant because I know that when we honor the marriage covenant, we honor the covenant that you have made with us. God, to the Christian in this room, I pray that they would remember that they belong to you. Their body is not their own. It belongs to you. So God, I pray that we would honor you with our bodies. We would honor you with our minds and with our hearts. God, help us to delight in your word and trust that when we do so, you will change our desires. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.